Well, good morning and welcome to Vertical Church. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you or your family yet, my name is Austin. Uh, I serve on the teaching team here, and I'm really excited to get to jump into week two of our series called Among the Few. Now, it's perfectly possible that you have parachuted into our auditorium, or even if you're online, and you actually missed um, week one when Ben started this series called Among the Few. And I can actually kind of summarize that whole talk, even though if you haven't heard it, you should go listen to it. But his whole talk was kind of predicated on this one idea. And it's the foundation for this entire series, actually, a foundation to this series that we think is really, really important for where we are going as a church. That statement that Ben made last week was this, some trouble in life we meet and some trouble in life we make. Some trouble in life we meet and some trouble in life we make. And the key to our following Jesus well is being able to distinguish when we come upon trouble, whether we made that trouble or whether we're meeting it and we have to navigate past that. We're going to continue in this idea this morning, but while we're here, I will say that that statement hit me when I was in the back of the room. Last week, I was back over in here and Ben made that statement. And even though I was in the meeting where he came up with that, I was like, Dang, that's good. (laughs) Didn't you quit? Go, like. (laughs) No, I've I've been in teaching team meetings with Ben uh, for a couple of years now, and I'm a little worried now that he's here. But I will say there are two general reactions that I have when he makes a statement like that. The first is like, man, that's really good. I wish I could come up with stuff like that. And you guys are familiar, if you've known Ben long enough, you know that he is really, really good at like massaging those phrases to where they're both like really encouraging and also a little bit of a gut punch, you know? I appreciate that. Sometimes when we're in teaching team meetings and I need a statement like that, I'll be working for hours on some things and it comes out something like, sometimes I happen to stumble across things that make me pretty uncomfortable and also other people pretty uncomfortable and maybe it makes God uncomfortable and that's an idea and Ben's like, maybe we should do something about that statement because that's not quite right. But I was thinking last week when I was in here also that listening to Ben say something like that, I, I had the thought, you know, The past couple of years knowing him have been really, really good for me. I've enjoyed getting to learn under Ben's teaching. And, um, you know, he said at one point that he thinks that he's probably a better guy than he is a leader. Um, And I don't know about that, but I do know that I'm very thankful for Ben and for his family because my family is in a different spot after knowing Ben and being his friend for the past several years. And I'm really, really excited for this next step that we're going in as a church But also, there is the truth of the fact that change is hard, and I think we all know that. Change is hard. But jumping into this next season of life, what we're learning, this idea of making and meeting trouble, is going to be very important for our church. There's a lot of value in starting something before we're ready. That's something that I've learned from Ben in the last year, even. And I think I'm willing to say that when Ben made that announcement, most of us were like, oh, we're not ready for this trouble. But there's a lot of value in jumping into a challenge before we think that we are ready. And I'm very, very excited to jump into this challenge with each of you, with this body as a church. That being said, when things are changing, and when things start to get a little stressful, 
whenever we're jumping into a new challenge, whether we're ready or not, there are some large traps that the enemy likes to lay for us. These are the types of trouble that we meet. There are some large traps that the enemy likes to lay for us, and this morning we're going to be talking about a major one that we need to be thinking about in the coming months. One of the largest traps, and we've been thinking a lot about this, that he lays is that sometimes we allow ourselves to be prideful enough to labor in ways that we know are not effective. Sometimes the enemy convinces us whenever we jump into a stressful situation, whenever we're having to deal with something that we haven't been praying towards, that we weren't ready for, sometimes the enemy can convince us in those stressful situations, go ahead and work in ways that you know aren't going to be effective. Because if he can keep us going in a circle, then he knows that he can keep us from moving forward. Now it seems silly to know that something won't work and to go ahead and do it, but it's a much more common phenomenon than you may understand. In fact, we see this a lot in history. For a maximalist example of this for just a second, I'm gonna toss an example up on the screens that I believe you'll be familiar with. Watch this video with me and then we'll come back to talk about what's going on. This was the great fire in the city of London almost to be compared with the fire of London in 1666. Pictures that look like hell on earth. This is what the German Air Force has done to our beautiful London. We shall not cry about it, it's the German method of making war. Isn't it time that the citizens of Berlin, too, should know this kind of horror? Let them suffer what London suffers. In this war, we've been told that we are all in the front line, but German citizens must be in the front line, too. Let us give praise to the men of the fire brigade. Regulars and AFS, every man was a hero, working under fire for hours on end. You will see from these pictures that Britain needs more firemen. There is urgent need of many more men to train for this battle of Britain which is still being fought. The fire brigades are appealing for help. They must not appeal in vain. Still the fire rages. The world will see these pictures of a raid that was not aimed at military objectives, only at the things that men and women have loved for centuries. The churches built by Christopher Wren after the fire of London. The famous buildings of the civic company, the Guild Hall. We can take even this, because we know that in the end we shall defeat these foul German brutes. But Germany must suffer too. Miraculously through it all, St. Paul stood in the midst of flames and escaped destruction. miracle that that fire was ever got under control, but so it was. Morning saw the wrecks of churches, St. Giles. St. Lawrence Jury. St. Bride's in Fleet Street. And the city's famous Guild Hall. London's battered city cries out for revenge. 
kind of a prerequisite to uh, be a little bit of a history nerd to be on staff here, so bear with me. But I was watching these videos. I recently came across this documentary series that never actually came out. And I realized, like, this is something that I had never seen, but it's definitely something that I had heard about, right? We're all familiar with this idea that in the early 1940s, as the world was at war before we were even involved in it, there was the indiscriminate bombing of cities. And you can see it there. You can see that these Nazi um, pilots were coming over East London and bombing them and just bombing even houses and civilians there. I love the cadence of these old nudes casters because they sound really, really brave even as they're talking about the city, even as they're talking about the people going through this blitz by the, py or by the pilots. In one of these videos, he says this, and I, I really, really like this. He says, London raises her head, shakes the debris of the night from her hair, and takes stock of the damage done. London has been hurt during the night. The sign of a great fighter, though, is in the ring is that he can get up from the floor after being knocked down. London does this every morning. For weeks and weeks and weeks, the British would go to bed. They would wake up after hearing bombs all night. They would get up. They would clean out whatever was going on in their house, and they would go on to work. Even now we use this, and I've, and I've heard even people that lived during that time, they'll bring them into speaking events because it is such an inspiration to bravery. But what's interesting about this is, even though they knew that this only furthered the courage of the British people, of, of the Londoners during that time, the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, and all of his advisors decided that they would actually bomb Berlin the same way. Now, there are famous interviews of people that lived in London at that time, and they say things like, no, we knew that we would make it out of this. It only emboldened us more that they were bombing our homes indiscriminately. But even knowing that that didn't work, Winston Churchill did the exact same thing to Berlin. In fact, it's been noted that had they taken on a different bombing doctrine, they could have ended the war much sooner and thousands of people's lives would have been saved. Thousands of people living in London as well. And so you look at this and you say, what, what is it about the human experience? When do we get to this stress level where we know something doesn't work? We know that a tactic, a plan doesn't work but we're willing to continually do that. What type of stress does that take to get us to this point? I've had people ask really, um, really recently, what, what is, what's up with all the stories that we tell on stage here? What's up with all the stories that we tell on stage here? I was thinking about that this week and even thinking about Winston Churchill, and we believe, and I think you can see from the example of Jesus when he's talking through the New Testament, that the human experience is always going to come parallel to our own spiritual well-being. And what we mean by that is you can look at stories even from 50, 60, 70 years ago or thousands of years ago in the Bible and see men and women struggling with issues that we still struggle with today. And there's a spiritual component to that. If we can learn from these wise people and even the mistakes that they made in their stories, then we can come out with a better idea of how to get past both the trouble that we make and the trouble that we meet that was not our fault. Now, I'm not the smartest guy that you're going to see on a stage in a church. It's just true. But good news for us, good news for the people of Vertical Church even, is that we see in the Bible often that God 
honors curiosity and a willingness to work things out much more than intelligence. And so looking at the passages of Scripture and even looking at the stories that Jesus himself tells, it's not about what we know. In fact, most of the time he rebukes that. It's about where we're willing to go to find out what he's like. And so this morning, we're going to jump into one of the famous times when Jesus does this. Jesus is really often met with these ultra-religious people, and they think they know everything, and they're really good at looking at really old texts of the Scripture and breaking them down line by line and confusing the crap out of everybody that just wants to know God. And Jesus meets them with their own, his own questions, and usually he meets them with a story. And these stories become famous because they make so much more sense for how we're supposed to live our lives. And that's exactly where we're jumping into with the rest of our time today. One of these ultra-religious men comes up to Jesus, and I'm not even really sure what his intentions were here. We like to think that they were trying to trip him up, but sometimes I think that they were genuinely curious and they saw that Jesus had something they didn't have. And we see him come up to Jesus and ask this question that they seem to be fascinated with. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what do I have to do to get this eternal life that you're talking about? Now, an important thing to know about their culture is the way that they understand eternal and eternal life is different than the way that you and I understand it. When I hear eternal life, I am predisposed from a long, long history of going into churches and figuring out how not to go to hell, right, to hear eternal life and think, okay, there's going to be some gates, some dude with a beard's going to let me in, I hope. But when they're thinking about eternal life, they're not just thinking about endless life or unlimited life. A great translation for the way that they look at that word eternal is, yes, unlimited, but also ultimate. Jesus, not only how do I have more life after I die, but how do I have more life right now that I'm living? How do I live my ultimate life? And Jesus meets his question with a question. Well, what does the scripture say? You're well educated. You got your PhD in that Bible. What does your scripture say? And he meets this question exactly how you would expect. He quotes it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And he even says the next part, which makes him a little bit uncomfortable. Also, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replies, perfect, that's great. You got it exactly right. And then this leader, this teacher, does this thing that we often do. He drew the line and said, okay, where is this line and do I have to step over it? He asked that extra question after he got it right. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? And this is where Jesus wanted to go. You almost feel, get the feeling that Jesus knew this is where it was going to go. He loves answering questions like this. And so I'm going to forewarn you, this passage that we're about to talk through, you know it. You may have known it for 60 or 70 years. And a lot of y'all have more experience than I do. But look at this for just a second through the lens that Jesus is speaking in the lens that this man was asking this. Not just, how do I get to go to heaven one day after I die? But how do I live my best life even now trying to follow God? That's the lens that he's talking and telling this story through. So for just a second, bear with me, and we're going to read through this, and I want you to think about it from that way. In Luke chapter 10, we'll pick up in verse 30, he answers the man with this story. He said, a man was going to, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, these thieves. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
A priest, a godly man, a man who had dedicated his life to studying the words of God, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, one of God's chosen people, the select group of people who were supposed to always serve God well, he came by him and he saw him and he passed on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, many of you know these are the sworn enemies of the Jews, this Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he pour, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, hey, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you have. This is a famous story, and it's one that we tell our kids, and it's good because it's meaningful, right? Love your enemy. Sometimes the people who say that they know Jesus really well aren't always the ones serving well. It's more important to be curious, right? It's more important to be curious about somebody's situation than what you think you know about them. But I used to think that the mic drop in this whole passage was when the man's enemy was, one that actu- was the one that actually ended up saving him. And it is a beautiful example of that. It's a beautiful example of not drawing lines between your type of people and my type of people, right? We see that on social media all the time. It's still a good lesson we could learn. But what I really like about this, and it's, it's something I didn't notice before, is that there's a point that comes from the priest and the Levite too. There's a point that comes from analyzing both the priest and the Levite as well, not just the Samaritan. Because you think about these men and what, they, what their lives were about. They would have been very educated. They would have known all the commandments that God had actually given them. They would have been trying to follow all of these to the letter of the law. They would have been trying to live the most informed and inspired life based on what God said in the book. But they were so worried about what was in the book that they couldn't apply it when it was directly in front of them. The trap that we fall into so often is that we forget our short-term decisions massively affect our long-term spiritual growth. Our short-term decisions massively affect our long-term spiritual growth. And this is a very humbling point to make when I realize how often I walk directly past somebody that I see is in need. And whether it's a friend and I think I just don't have time for the situation they're in, or I can't deal with their relationship this week, or whether it's that time when I I pull off to go to the gym on county line every week and I see that guy there holding the sign and I'm like, if I don't make eye contact, he's not there. Whatever it is, the reality is that we need to understand on a very functional level The short-term decisions, the daily decisions, the decisions that I make daily have a long-term effect on the goals that I have for my spiritual life later on. Because I can come in here every week with perfect attendance. I can read the Bible 17 times. I can have the ideas and the principles and the doctrine down. I can learn how to exegete scripture perfectly and tell you all these words actually mean this. But if my decisions don't follow that, then I will never actually reach the life that I want to have. I won't look anything like the God that I've been studying. 
And it becomes very easy to forget that whenever we get into the daily rhythms that we do. I'm busy, you're busy, I have a life, you have a life, a job, a family, and other responsibilities to worry about. But when we take a look at Jesus, he was very good at applying the stories or the lessons that he was giving from these stories to actually making time for the people around him that were in need. So often these small, minute decisions that we're, make, that we're making actually lead to the personal victories that lend to real spiritual growth. You know, it's very interesting when you look at those history books and you look at the conversations that Winston Churchill was having with his advisors, they were all telling him, we're getting bombed. We have to bomb Berlin the same way and make them feel the same pain that we're feeling. Make these big decisions, the maximalist decisions. But after the war, there was a new type of bombing doctrine that was born out of a little bitty Air Corps tactical school in Alabama. And the world would adopt it. You see, this, these first airmen that would wind up becoming the Air Force, they said, look, if we can actually go in and do small steps, bomb little ball-bearing factories where no one will actually be hurt. If we take out these industrial points, then the whole war could come to an end with thousands of less casualties. So often we forget that sometimes it's those small targets, those small decisions that can make the biggest impact on our lives and others much down the road. If we're paying attention to the small things, the big things will fall into line. They understood that these small targets to lead, could lead to big change. This only comes about through collaboration of these inquisitive minds on this air base, and I could talk about that all day, but the major point that we need to leave here thinking about is that our decisions, like that Samaritan, our decisions speak much louder than our beliefs. Our decisions speak much louder than our beliefs. We become a people that are really, really good at telling one another what we believe. Whether it's on Facebook, whether it's holding a sign somewhere, whether it's having a conversation with only people that believe the same things as I do, we become really good at telling people what we believe, but do our decisions follow that? As much as we would like to convince ourselves that all of those things make a difference, the things that actually make a difference for us are being able to see people, to show them compassion, be intentional in the way that we do that, and then even preparing our lives, be it on an individual level or as a church as we go into our next season, being able to organize our lives on the service that God has called us to. One of the things that I fell in love with at Vertical Church from the very beginning was the statement that we are here for broken people. We are here for broken people. So often these endless wars happen whenever we lose our focus and we realize that we're just trying to motivate each other to jump into these lives that we're trying to lead. It's really easy for you to leave here on a Sunday being motivated by something that I say or something that Ben says. We see this all the time with your students, right? They go to church camp and they're really motivated. We see this when we go to men's conferences or, or women's conferences or what, we're really, really motivated. The truth is motivation only gets us so far. 
We need to be disciplined. We need to be disciplined into making decisions that actually lead to real spiritual growth. Something that I want us to think about as we're jumping into this new season, as we're jumping into what God wants for us next, is what is our purpose here? If it's for broken people that God has called us to, then we need to be diligent about seeking that out in the future. How can we be a part of community of a community that is serving broken people? Something that we've been talking a lot about with the staff going into this new season is that purpose can be elusive and preference can be a dangerous substitute. We have to guard ourselves from jumping into a new season as a church where we really, really want this in a new lead pastor. Or when this new guy comes, I want this for our church. It needs to be stemming from our conversations with God and our personal relationship with him and what our purpose is as a people. Next week is going to be a great opportunity to practice this. One of my favorite times of year at Vertical is Easter with you guys. I love that we get to come here and it's a little different. We get to do crawfish. I've already done two crawfish boils this year because, you know, um, I love crawfish. This is a perfect example of meeting that purpose. You know people that need to be a part of this community, right? Vertical has made a difference in your life, and you know that Vertical can make a difference in their life as well. Sometimes we just needed a little excuse like crawfish. That's why we do that. Where are the broken people around you? And can we start mending their lives and giving them Jesus in doses by giving them crawfish and a cold drink? Maybe. That's the way that we feel like we need to do that at Vertical. I would encourage you to be a part of that as much as the people who are cooking the crawfish or the staff organizing Easter or the volunteers out there with the yellow tags welcoming people. Your part in this is getting the people that you love to be a part of a community where brokenness can start to be healed through Jesus. Another way that you can serve in Easter next week is there are going to be more people here than we see for the rest of the year. Our numbers almost double on Easter, which is awesome. But sadly, a lot of times, these broken people come in to investigate a church that they feel like might have the answers, and they find that there are no seats in first service. One easy step for us is, hey, regulars, come to second service so people that can need help can be here at first service. It's an easy, easy ask. Why am I saying all this? Going into the next few months, you're going to hear a lot of updates about Vertical Church, even after Easter, even after next week is awesome. There are going to be a lot of updates, and we're going to be thinking about what type of church we want to be. What type of church do we want to be? What I would ask for you is to prayerfully move forward and ask about our purpose. Look for the broken people and look for opportunities where we can be compassionate and lovingly lead them to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time that we get to spend in your word, God. I thank you that you honor curious people, that you honor people who have a shockingly little amount of answers. God, I thank you that you love us enough to break down the principles that you want us to know through stories that even we can understand. God, I pray that people's lives would be changed at Vertical Church and that this would be a place where we can jump on that track, not only for eternal life and unlimited life, but God, that we would be living 
ultimate lives because of the goodness that you've infused into each and every day that we live. And I pray that we'd be so ecstatic about that as a community that we couldn't help but bring others into this. God, we know that the next couple of months will be challenging, but we also know that they will be exciting because you're walking with us and pointing us towards where you would have us, Lord. Thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. And thank you that you're letting us be a part of your mission here in Madison. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you all on Easter next week. Have a great week.